Oh, it's a full house this morning. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. It's really fun to be able to teach uh, this morning to give our Pastor Hans a nice uh, break, to study God's Word with you all. I've been super excited to jump into this book of Mark. Um, I think that what we're going to learn in the coming months is really going to challenge us. Um, it's going to challenge and encourage us more about understanding who Jesus our King is. So I've titled this morning's message, A Stage Set for the King. A Stage Set for the King. And hopefully that title will become clear as we go through the text this morning. I want to start by laying out what I think Mark's main ideas are in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And after each main idea, I'll then ask us to think clearly about what that means for us as disciples. So you can write these down quickly, um, and I'll reference back to them as we go. Mark's main ideas. Number one, the book is about Jesus. Number two, John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism. Number three, John the Baptist is Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Number four, John points to Jesus and the coming Holy Spirit. So those are the four main ideas that we're going to talk about. And again, if you didn't get them down, don't worry, I'll reference back to them. Just leave some space in your notes. So, in 1977, George Lucas launched his epic space saga, Star Wars, with the iconic yellow crawling screen, giving a slight context to what was about to emerge on the screen. A civil war, stolen plans, a princess, a super weapon, and I loved how it described sinister agents of the Empire. Then without warning, a raging space battle ensues between the aptly named Imperial Star Destroyer Devastator and the consular ship Tantive IV. And less than five minutes into the film, we are introduced into the villain, Darth Vader, as he interrogates the captain of the ship as to the whereabouts of those plans that were stolen from the Empire. And we're introduced to all this, the dysfunction of the Skywalker family. The introduction to this franchise is so effective because there is no buildup to the action. The viewer is thrust into the middle of a conflict that has apparently been happening for some time. But without that little piece of context at the beginning, as a viewer, you'd be lost. You see, Mark uses the same effect to start his gospel. We could think of verses 1 through 3 in our text this morning, like the iconic yellow crawl screen before all of the Star Wars movies. Hans did a great job laying out for us the historical context. Um, last week. And so what I want you guys to um, do as we're going through this gospel is to take some time outside of being a congregant in church, and put yourself into the position of being an audience member. Someone who's hearing this piece of literature, this drama for the first time. And so I've included a couple pictures here to help us understand the setting so we can visualize where this part of the story takes place. This is the wilderness area of the Jordan River Valley in Israel, 
where John the Baptist would have been conducting his baptisms. You see, the whole drama of Scripture reaches a climactic point here in the book of Mark. And if we can't experience it for both the theological truths that are contained within it, as well as for the significance of the life of the historical person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, that happens within the narrative of God's restorative and redemptive work, then we will miss the fullness of the good news of this gospel message. So I'd encourage you guys, as you study through Mark with us, take some time to read large chunks of the book at a time. Because it really is a story that's meant to be read all at once. And I hope that as you do that, you can see how the drama unfolds. And I would invite you to see this section of Scripture as a stage set for the king. So verses 1 through 3 are like that crawl screen, that yellow crawl screen, giving us context to the drama that is about to unfold. Verse 1 is packed with context, and I'm not going to revisit all of that because Hans covered it in great detail last week. But the key takeaway from that verse 1 is that Jesus is God. And the whole book is about Jesus. As is the rest of the Bible, but the book of Mark is very obviously about Jesus. That's my first point. The book is about Jesus. So before we go any further, let's read Mark 1. Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So let's unpack this a little bit more, and we'll add another layer of depth to the obvious statement in verse 1, that this gospel is about Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3 make some references to some Old Testament texts that Mark's audience, who was most likely the early church in Rome, would have been made up of mostly Jewish folks. They would have caught that. So it's not like when I'm teaching my high school class and I'm taking role, and a kid doesn't say here, and I go, Bueller, Bueller. It's not like that. Right? Mark's audience wouldn't have just stared at him blankly. They would have caught the reference. And so the early church at the turn of the first century would have been very familiar with Old Testament texts. So when Mark makes a reference in the traditional Jewish way, they wouldn't have just gotten the line that he referenced. They would have been able to put the whole scene together, as it were. And so we'll see, um, Mark does this in the beginning, and then he'll quote Jesus doing the same strategy, where Jesus will allude to an Old Testament text, and his expectation is that the audience understands where he's drawing from. Now, this is a little bit problematic for us in 2019 because most of us didn't spend six days a week from sunup to sundown from the ages of 7 to 14 memorizing the Old Testament like Jewish people would have done back in those days. So we probably wouldn't have caught from verse 2 and verse 3 that Mark is actually alluding to at least two different Old Testament texts and perhaps even three. I'll make an argument for three this morning. And that the only one of them is actually the prophet Isaiah. Except for, some of you probably caught as you were reading, your Bibles probably have some footnotes, and that's perhaps the only reason why we might have caught that. So I want to point something out here, because Mark says that it's from the prophet Isaiah, and we recognize that not all three of those verses that he quotes from are from Isaiah. But Mark is not crazy. 
he is accurate, and he should be trusted. Because in those days, if you were quoting from multiple sections of Scripture, you only needed to quote the one that was most important, or cite the one that was most important, because the audience would have been familiar with where you were referencing from. So Mark cites Isaiah here, not because Isaiah contains tons, uh, not only because he's the most important out of the three, but because he contains uh, a lot of messianic prophecy. And Mark wants to start the audience thinking of all the stuff that's going to come up later in the story. So let's go to these passages quickly and take a look at them in their context so we can better get an idea of what Mark is introducing here at the beginning of Mark 1. There are three places we're going to turn to in order, and they're right here on the screen, so you can write these down. Exodus 23.20, Malachi 2.17 through chapter 3, verse 1, which was the passage that Keegan read to us earlier, and then Isaiah 41 through 5. So again, if you don't get these down, don't worry, I'm going to reference them in order here. So here's the text from Exodus. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now this passage is talking about God guiding the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. But in our context here in Mark, he only quotes that first part of the, the verse. And the meaning is that John is the messenger before Christ. And that argument will become clear here in a second. The second text is this. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So I've included a little bit more context with this verse as it's quoted because, again, Mark would have expected that his audience would have remembered the context around the verse itself. And I'll reference back to this particular passage in the context of John's preaching about repentance. But the idea here is that Israel has not been following Yahweh with faithfulness. Yahweh is going to send an envoy to his people. And he's going to restore the covenant between the people and himself. We've spent the past year looking through Deuteronomy and understanding how full of covenant faithfulness God is to his people. When Mark quotes this passage, he envisions John as the preparatory messenger and Jesus as the messenger of the covenant. Indeed, even as God himself. This is the last place that Mark pulls from. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made plain, made low. And uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, 
and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the passage from Isaiah. The context of this verse ties the whole quotation in Mark together. And we can see why this passage in Isaiah is the one that is cited as the most important out of those three. Mark draws our attention to who he thinks the subject of the passage is. And he draws it by the editorial changes he makes when he quotes them in his gospel. In this passage here in Isaiah, it says, Prepare the way of the Lord. In the original language, that would have been the Tetragrammaton, which we know as Yahweh. But when Mark quotes the term, uh, the text, he changes the term to Lord or Kyrios in the Greek, which is a term that he later applies to Jesus himself. But also in the Greek New Testament would have been applied to God. And then he quotes, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's the original text from Isaiah. But then he changes it to make his path straight. This choice to change this quotation in this way implies that Mark had the understanding that God had come as a him, as a man in the form of Jesus, of Nazareth. So the fullness of this context in this passage from Isaiah, from Mark's point of view, seems to indicate that Jesus, in Jesus, the glory of Yahweh has been revealed, and that in the words and work of Jesus, we can find comfort and pardon for our sins. So when you put all of it together, basically here's what Mark is saying. So I've changed uh, or added some nouns to add clarity here. It says, Behold, I, Yahweh, send my, referring to himself, God referring to himself, messenger, John, before your face, Jesus, who will prepare your way, that's Jesus' way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, referencing to John. You people, the people of Israel who he's preaching to, prepare the way of the Lord, referencing to Jesus. You people, make his path straight, referring to Jesus again. So Mark makes it clear in the way that he quotes these passages and in their contexts that God has come in the form of Jesus. He makes that clear right from the outset. It's almost like one of those magic eye things where you can't see it unless you squint just right. But once you do, it seems so obvious, like, oh, yes, this is clearly referencing Jesus. So Mark is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who comes. He's God himself. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, who do I say Jesus is? Who do I say that Jesus is? For Mark, there was no question that Jesus was Yahweh incarnate, here to administer a new covenant on his behalf. And you see, for the early church, before Paul's letters were widely circulated, before there were common creeds that were agreed upon, some of the text we sang this morning, um, there was some debate about who Jesus was. Today, even within evangelicalism, even though we may not debate the historicity of the person of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, our lives and our actions say a lot about who we say Jesus is. I love the way that Hans said it last week in his sermon. He said, we cannot have Jesus as our Savior if he is not first our Lord and our King. And this is an unspoken debate within Christianity in the West. 
Jesus was more than a great rabbi or teacher. He was more than a compassionate miracle worker. Jesus was born, lived a a perfect, sinless life, in order that creation may be restored to its creator through the blood he shed on the cross. He came with authority, the authority of God himself, because he is God himself, to administer a new covenant in his blood, a new promise that we could be one with the Father. And he proved that he had that authority to make that promise by defeating sin and death when he rose from the tomb three days after he was buried. He then ascended into heaven to take his place on the throne. And there shouldn't be any debate about who he is. Yes, he is our Savior, and that's important. And he is our Lord and our King. If this is the first time that you're hearing this good news, this gospel message that Jesus is the King, we'd invite you to come talk with us after the service. We'd love to help you understand more about God's redemptive love and what role you and the Holy Spirit play in responding to the promise Jesus made. So who do we say Jesus is? I'd ask us this week to reflect on the things we say and do and to examine if these things accurately reflect who Jesus is. If they don't, I'd ask us to check whether it's our beliefs about Jesus and who Jesus is that are incorrect, or if it's our words and our actions that are incongruent with our beliefs. Or maybe you're like me, and sometimes both your beliefs about who Jesus is and your words and actions need to be changed. So I invite you to do that. Who do we say Jesus is? Let's look back in Mark 4 through 6. It says this, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So Mark's next main idea is this. John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism. John the Baptist preached repentance and baptism. But why was a baptism of repentance needed if the Jews were still under the old covenant of animal sacrifice? Recall from the passage that Keegan read to us from Malachi um, and that we already referenced, it says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? See, the Jews at that time could be indistinguishable from the Greco-Roman culture they were a part of. They relied almost exclusively on their ethnic heritage as Jews for their salvation, instead of on God's covenantal love and promises. They participated in the sacrifices, in the rituals, and the festivals, but it was merely lip service. As we will see later in Mark, when Jesus cleanses the temple... The Jews had perverted the sacrificial system into a money-making scheme that perverted God's heart of justice and righteousness and preyed upon the vulnerable and the marginalized. What John was advocating for was a ritual baptism that individual Jews would walk into after confessing the ways they had misused the grace of the covenant God had given them. 
a covenant that was given to the people of Israel to be a picture of righteousness and justice in the world. And they would repent, and they would promise to change their actions to reflect the grace that they had received. And I wonder, considering this, how much conviction we would feel if we substituted American in for Jewish in that previous statement. Indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the culture, relying on our heritage, participating in sacrifices and rituals, but merely as lip service, perverting God's heart of justice and righteousness. You see, John's goal was to turn people back to following Yahweh faithfully and for that faith to play out in their interactions with each other and with the world. His goal was to prepare a people who would be ready for Jesus to tell them really hard things like love your neighbor as yourself and things like sell everything you own, give the money to the poor and follow me. And this one is the hardest for me. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. John wanted people who were ready to hear those hard things so they could follow Jesus with their whole heart. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have I repented from my sin and been baptized? Have I repented from my sin and been baptized? Are there areas in your life in which repentance is not taking place and you know it should? Places where your heart is turned towards something other than worship of Christ as Lord and King that you need to lay down once and for all. I'd ask us to take a moment this morning and silently confess those things to the Lord. Write them down even in your notes and prepare a plan to fight against them a plan of repentance, of confession. And as the elders of this church, we'd love to help you out with that. Again, we'll be available in the back after service. And for the members of this church, one of the requirements that we have is that you have been baptized and publicly professed a faith in Jesus as your king and that your life and the way that you live with your time, talents, and treasures bears witness to the fact that Jesus is your king. I worry, though, if you are anything at all like me, that I treat my profession of faith as a transaction and not a relationship. Uh, for my personality type, it's really important to have tasks so I can check boxes. So yes, I was baptized once. I confessed Jesus once. And at a certain point in my life, hopefully right now, I had fruit that showed repentance and regeneration. Check. So that I must be good with God from a transactional standpoint. It's a very transactional view of the good news. And sometimes we pervert that sacrifice that Jesus made into something that we can just grab onto one time. And we're good. But the reality is the gospel is not meant to be transactional. It's meant to be relational. It's fundamentally based on who God sees us as. His children and citizens in his kingdom. 
the pinnacle of all of his creation. There's the saying that you save the best for last. God created us and it was so good that he rested. It's based on who God sees us as and it's based on how we relate to God as our good and loving father and as our king. Now, when I get my wife flowers for Valentine's Day, she feels loved because I'm remembering her. However, if I don't consistently show her that she's loved for the other 364 days of the year, then the flowers on Valentine's Day don't really mean a whole lot. And our relationship would not really be a relationship at that point. It would just be more of an obligatory transaction. Well, it's Valentine's Day. Here are your flowers. I hope you feel appreciated. You're laughing because you know that's happened to me before. <laughs> you see, we would just be two people, and my wife loves to use this phrase with me too, two people frequently coexisting in the same space. And it's, our same, it's the same thing with our response to the gospel. Jesus freely gives us his grace, which allows us then to enter into relationship with him, to respond to his love. That's grace, the ability to respond to God's love. And our responsibility then in response is to walk as his obedient children and as citizens of his kingdom. And when we make mistakes, like forgetting to buy our wife flowers on Valentine's Day, we quickly humble ourselves. We ask for forgiveness and quickly reconcile to God and to one another. So the next point Mark makes in his text is this. John the Baptist is Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. He's Elijah, John the Baptist is Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, for those of you literary nerds or movie buffs, you may be familiar with a term called Chekhov's gun. This is the idea that in literature or film, you don't introduce seemingly random details into the plot without them being significant later on in the film. A classic example from my childhood, it's weird saying from my childhood because this movie doesn't seem that old, is the M. Night Shyamalan film, Signs. Early in the film, we are introduced to the fact that the young child in the film compulsively leaves glasses of water all around her house. And it seems random until at the end of the film, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen it, <laughs> the aliens are defeated by water. And at the climax of the film, you realize how crucial it was that this little girl compulsively leaves glasses of water all over the house. That and the fact that they give detail about her uncle that doesn't make any sense either, that he was an ex-minor league baseball player. Random. Until he uses a bat to smash all the glasses of water into the aliens. Thus saves the family. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I'm saving you guys some time. You don't have to watch the film now. So the water and the bat turn into a Chekhovian gun, as it were. And here in verses 4 through 6, Mark employs that same strategy. Let's read through these verses again. And I said 4 through 6, but 
what I really meant was four through six. Wow, it's amazing, <laughs> amazing. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's awesome to be prepared, by the way. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So a couple things jump out immediately. Why was it necessary for an author who was known for his brevity to include a full description of how John the Baptist was dressed and what he ate? It doesn't make any sense. The fact that John the Baptist wore a camel hair cloak and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey was included for more than just showing that John the Baptist was weird. In fact, the reason it was included is so that the reader would associate John the Baptist with Elijah. In 2 Kings 1.8, Elijah the prophet is identified specifically as wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. This is not coincidental. Because this was not normal Near Eastern attire. People just didn't go around with camel hair and a belt. Right? It wouldn't have been comfortable. But John was clearly copying Elijah. John knew he was on a mission to announce that the Messiah was on the way. And the diet, the locusts and the honey, were to serve as a reference point that would connect us, the hearer, the reader, Back to verse 4 and verse 2. So let's book, look back in verse 4 and verse 2 of Mark 1. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make uh, his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so... The reason is Mark wants the reader to connect Elijah with the wilderness and John with Elijah. And so it's very obvious there that Mark sees John as Elijah. But why is this important? Why is this important that John is the Elijah character? And this is again from what Keegan read to us earlier this morning. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Malachi 4.5 Now this reference comes at the very end of the Old Testament. A period before the Lord ghosts the nation of Israel for around 400 years. Basically, God is hearing their prayers and he leaves them on red. That was a joke for the younger folks in the crowd. But the Jews in that time... They would have been expecting a visit from Elijah before God would come to restore creation. The Messiah couldn't come before Elijah had come. So what Mark is saying is that John is the Elijah character and that the day of Yahweh is here and is in fact came and is currently here because Jesus has come and Jesus is God. Now to be clear, Mark is not saying, and I had to clear this up with my wife when I was explaining this to her this week, John is not literally Elijah reborn. He didn't get sweeped into heaven and then somehow held for a thousand years and then reborn. That would be weird. That's not what he's saying. 
He's simply making a literary connection that John fits the prophetic role that Elijah was to play. And that is to preach repentance and for Israel to turn back to Yahweh and to prepare for the Messiah, for creation to be restored. So, I alluded to these seemingly random details that they would be important. And you should see, just in that small context, that they are important. But that's not the full scope of Chekhov's gun in this circumstance. So if you want to, you can read ahead. It plays out to the fullest in Mark chapter 9. And you can put those pieces together for yourself, or you can wait until we get there, which may be a while. So you might want to read ahead. I don't know. So let's read the last couple of verses here. Verse 7. And John the Baptist preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the last point Mark makes is this. John points to Jesus and the coming Holy Spirit. John points to Jesus and the coming Holy Spirit. Now, after reading this verse, verse 7, it's hard to see John as a prophet and not as one of the premier MCs in the ancient Near East after he drops that bar. I think the translators of the ESV did that on purpose. He says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am worthy to stoop down and untie. The Greek literally translates to stronger one. I'm waiting for the joke to kind of play out there. The Greek literally translates to stronger one. This description seems apt for a comparison between Jesus and John. Jesus performed many recorded miracles and many, it says, that were not recorded. He raised people from the dead and the pinnacle of his works was raising himself from the dead. So yes, I guess you could say that Jesus fits the description of being a stronger one than John. In the ancient Near East, the disciples would be expected to do anything for their masters, except one thing. The single exception was to take off your master's sandal. That was too disgraceful for a disciple to do for their master. A non-Jewish slave would have to do that. So when John makes this comparison that he's not even worthy to do this most disgraceful act for the coming one, it shows that in John's mind, the nature of the coming one would clearly be some sort of divine authority. Someone who would have the authority to initiate the kingdom of God. And so for Mark in the early church, the early Christians to infer here that John is referencing Jesus as the stronger one based on Jesus' own statements about himself and the things that he did, it would have been the smallest, smallest reach. They would have made that immediately. They immediately would have recognized that the one who was coming, the stronger one, was Jesus, and that Jesus had, in fact, demonstrated his divine authority in initiating the kingdom of God through the miracles, the exorcisms, um, and his resurrection. 
Then John goes on to explain that while his baptism was with water, Jesus' baptism would be with the Holy Spirit. John was saying, it's great that I give you this baptism, but it's only temporary. The Jewish believers at that time were, in a sense, still white-knuckling it. Remember that God had been ghosting the Jews for 400 years at that point. He had been silent. And John's followers had repented, and they were striving to walk in righteousness and justice, but they were doing it basically on their own. They didn't have the Holy Spirit to empower them. And that is contrasted with the baptism that Jesus offers. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life? You see, when we confess our sins and repent and turn away from them and are baptized, our sin is buried with Christ and we are resurrected in a new life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send his helper, the Holy Spirit, to teach and to correct and to bring unity among the citizens of his kingdom. And when we choose to make Jesus our king, the sign-on bonus, if you will, is the Holy Spirit. We no longer have to try to be good enough on our own, only to get discouraged and beat up when we fail, which we all do. The Holy Spirit brings conviction and correction, but then it moves us and within our community to allow space for repentance and reconciliation to occur. It allows us to image the love of Yahweh to the world around us. But here's the caveat. We must cooperate with the Holy Spirit to allow him to work in us and through us. If we give in to our internal stubbornness and pride, we stifle the Holy Spirit's ability to grow us more into the image of Christ. I do this thing at home where when situations come up in my pride and stubbornness, I'll go to my wife and I'll tell her, oh man, I'm so frustrated by this thing. I'm going to do this, this, and this. I'm so mad. These things I'm going to do are totally against the heart of Jesus. And I know that Often the Holy Spirit works through Sarah as an agent of change in my life because she'll lovingly lovingly say to me, we both know you're not going to do that. I really am praying that your heart softens on this issue. And in those moments, it's obviously not a secret voice from heaven saying those things to me, but it is absolutely the Holy Spirit working in my life. So my question is, who are those people God has placed in your life as agents of the Holy Spirit? speaking encouragement, conviction, and truth into your life? Do you find yourself recoiling and continuing on in stubbornness and pride in those situations? Or is your heart soft and willing to listen and repent if needed so that God can be made great in your life? I want us to take a moment this morning and think through a specific area where you have the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, either through the Word and an internal conviction or through a multitude of God's people speaking to you about something in particular that needs addressing? What will you do to submit to that conviction? What's your plan going to be to repent and reconcile if needed? You see, we have the benefit of this great baptism that John is talking about. We have access to the Holy Spirit, God himself. We simply need to bend the knee to Jesus as our king and walk humbly with him. And again, if this idea of Jesus as your king is new, 
Or if you feel like you haven't been walking in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, we'd love to talk with you in the back and to learn how we can help you grow as a disciple. So I want to close with this from 1 Peter 1-2. I don't have a slide for this one, but it's from 1 Peter 1-2. You were chosen according to the purpose of God the Father and were made a holy people by His Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be purified by His blood. May grace and peace be yours in full measure. Mission Fellowship, may we be a church that knows that the world does not revolve around us, but knows that God's redemptive work is the only plot line that matters. May we be a church that is quick to repent and to walk in righteousness and justice. May we be a church that recognizes that Jesus the Messiah has come and has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be in fruitful relationship with God and with one another. May we be a church that bends the knee to Jesus as our King. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your work in our lives, for sending your helper, the Holy Spirit, to bring about conviction. Pray that we would be humble, that we would recognize that you are our King and that you have given us each other as a gift to speak truth and encouragement and love. We thank you for this time to be a family together. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship together, we'd invite you guys to respond by giving of tithes and offerings on either side. There's boxes there to show generosity back to the Lord for the generosity he's shown to you guys. And the communion tables are open. Communion symbolizes Jesus' body and blood that he shed for us to welcome us into his kingdom, to show us his love as our Father. So as we go, uh, we'd invite anyone who's a member in good standing, or if you're a visitor, if you're in good standing at your church, join us in that. Let's remember God's goodness in our lives this morning.